start with Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's pray together. God, we humbly come before Your mighty and all-powerful Word. God, we come asking You to teach us and rebuke us and correct us and train us in Your righteousness, God, in Your ways. God, we pray against just coming in this place and leaving just the same. God, we ask You to move and challenge our hearts and our minds encourage and inspire and empower us to live for You in the week to come, God. This world is so filled with darkness and we ask for Your light to shine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And Do you have the sermon notes? Did I forget to put... Oh, okay. Just checking. Take that off real quick. Okay, so, uh, uh, so I wanted to begin asking you guys, do any of y'all read poetry? What of you say, all right, Judy reads poetry. Good deal. Anyone else, would you say, I oh, like to just sit around and read poetry? Wow, we've got one poetry. Jason, I don't believe you. So, uh, but actually, uh, that the Psalms uh, is a collection of poetry, of Hebrew poetry. Uh, and, and so that's such an important, the whole book of Psalms is a collection of Hebrew poetry. Uh, and it would have been put to music in that time uh, and, and really neat to, to think about. Uh, but it's more than that. It's more than just a book of ancient poems. It's a guide for us as believers to share. Uh, how, how do we share our emotions with the God that created us? With the God that we read about in the Bible, the God that we know. And, and so the, the Psalms is a great place to go to experience somebody with a relationship with God that's pouring their heart out to God. And so, so the, the, the Psalms are more than just ancient proverbs, or I mean, or ancient poetry. They're, they're, they're a guide to help us draw closer to God. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, these ancient poems can be transformed from just words on a page to where they're just kind of there and you just read them and go on, you can be transformed in, into like poetry in motion. Because they take you and your emotional state, whatever it might be, and draw you closer to God 
and through the power of the Holy Spirit at work through the Holy Scriptures, through the Bible, you begin to transform from the inside out. Don't ever think you're going to get anywhere starting with outside actions. Oh, I'm going to clean this up and I'm going to stop doing this and that before I go to church or before I get right with God. It's never going to happen. If you're going to become more Christ-like, if you're going to be saved and, and truly secure in a relationship with God, it's going to begin on the inside. And as God does a powerful work inside you, it's going to start to change the outside. But it's got to start within. And so poetry, if you think about poets, that's something that they are. They're, they're moved within. They see the world differently than regular people. And they also see words differently. Poets see the power of words. And poets use words as tools of healing. Or sometimes, especially I would say in the Bible, as weapons of war. This poetry can be used as a weapon of war to, uh, to, to fight off satanic attacks and, uh, and, and, and sinful struggles with the flesh. But believe it or not, roughly 40% of the Old Testament is Hebrew poetry. 40% of the Old Testament is Hebrew poetry. And so if that large of a portion of Scripture is in some way related to Hebrew poetry, we ought to learn it, shouldn't we? We ought to learn more about Hebrew poetry and, and how to read it. Uh, and so the Bible is different from other forms of poetry that we know because the writers of the Bible were using something called parallelism, whereas we are used to poems just being, or I, anyway, I should say, think more of just poetry as words that rhyme. So I have a great poet here, a great poem here. I have a little frog. His name is Tiny Tim. I put him in the bathtub to see if he could swim. He drank up all the water. He grabbed up all the soap. And when he tried to talk, he had a bubble in his throat. I don't know who wrote that, but that was not me. So, uh, so that's a poem I found on the internet. And, uh, but that's what I would think of when I was thinking of poetry. That's, that's, uh, that would be my mind. But if you look up poems, they're not always rhyming. They don't always rhyme. And, and especially in Hebrew uh, poetry. So they would use parallelism, which is a, a form of writing where one line is repeated, contrasted, or advanced by what was in the line before it. So this type of poetry is more about weaving thoughts together rather than just rhyming words uh, uh, and, uh, and having words that play off. You're using whole thoughts. So Hebrew poetry, and I'm trying not to put you guys to sleep, we'll go through this quickly, is, uses synonymous parallelism, antithetic parallelism, and synthetic parallelism are some of the main forms that you'll find. And so synonymous parallelism repeats an idea found in the previous segment. So it repeats an idea uh, found in the, in the previous segment. So you'll see those thoughts run in parallel, just worded a little differently. Look at Genesis 4.23. Adah and Zalah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So we see that parallelism in both verses. This one. He kills a guy for wounding him, and then he describes him a little bit different. The young man had struck him, 
So you see parallelism. The other one listed the wives' names um, and then said the wives again of Lamech. So there's one example in Psalm 2-4 that we just read. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in in derision. So there's parallelism there in God laughing and then derision reflects kind of a mocking, a mockery. Uh, uh, mocking them for what they were trying to do against him. You see it also in Psalm 51, 2-3. David, after committing great sins, says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. So wash me and cleanse me. You see those parallel. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He knows his sin. It's parallel. It's before him. And so they're similar, uh, just worded a little bit differently. And we think about how people heard the Bible back then. They heard it verbally most of the time. So it was worded in such a way of of being able to stick in your mind. And uh, and, and really, uh, you would be able to recall it and remember it. Another form is antithetic parallelism, where there's a contrast. So the first line's clarified by a contrast. We looked at that last week in Psalm 1, 6. For the Lord knows the way of the wicked, and then or I'm sorry, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So there's the contrast: the righteous and the wicked. The Lord knows the way of the righteous; it's parallel with the way of the wicked. The contrast: they will perish. Psalm 34:10: The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So God is taking care of those that seek the Lord, but those young lions that think they don't need God suffer want and hunger. Uh, Psalm 50, uh, Psalm, I mean Proverbs 14:10. The heart knows its own bitterness, and no stranger shares its joy. So we see the parallelism, the contrast between bitterness and joy. And that's examples of antithetic parallelism you'll find in Hebrew poetry. And then synthetic parallelism is the form of poetic construction where each line expands and it builds on the main thought. So this thought builds on this thought. We saw that last week in verse 3 of chapter 1 of Psalms. So he is like a tree. He's planted by streams of water. It expands on the tree. It could be like a tree anywhere, but he expands on that. It's planted by streams of water. That tree yields its fruit when it's supposed to in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And so you see that they're, they're building. There's those parallel thoughts are running, but they're building on each other. The New Illustrated Bible Dictionary, which I encourage everybody to get a Bible dictionary of some kind, very handy to have. It says the, the Bible is full of numerous figures of speech, such as metaphors and similes. For example, the psalmist metaphorically described God by saying, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So we see all those things working in there. Moses gave this Remarkable simile describing God's care of Israel in the wilderness. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, 
So the Lord alone led them. And you can find that in Deuteronomy 32. So Moses is using a simile to show God, you know, describe God like an eagle. And so these figures of speech are not to be interpreted literally. We're not to think that we can go get a rock and say, well, this is my God. That's not what he meant. It's like that. God is strong and, and, uh, and enduring and, and, and there. Uh, so, uh, so God, that, that's the, the poetic part of it, the poetic symbolism that they're using for God. God is the firm ground of life. The New Illustrated Bible Dictionary says, a solid defense against evil. The worshiper sings for joy because of God's loving, protecting presence. Uh, and the soaring power of His loving care. So much of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is poetry, believe it or not. Uh, but it's poetry in motion. It's not like the frog poem that's just kind of there for no purpose, just to, to laugh at or to get a kid to, uh, to, to laugh. Uh, this is poetry with intention. It's the Word of God in poetic form, living and active and able to teach you and rebuke you and correct you and train you as a believer in Jesus Christ. Train you in the ways of God. Equip you to do everything God has called you to do. And so it's so important that we uh, take that in and think about that. If we look at Psalm 2 and think about what is this poem dealing with? One of the things this poem is dealing with is rage. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? So rage is, uh, what it's referring to is an out of control emotion. Emotions that are just out of control and especially anti-God emotions. That's what it's talking about here. Emotions that are going against the will of God, the Word of God, the ways of God. And, and that's evil. Evil's not just murdering somebody or neglecting your children or doing something that, that puts, gets you put on death row. Evil is anything that we do that goes against the will of God and against the Word of God and against the ways of God. We're really good about minimizing our pet sins Acting like that's not evil, that's just sort of a little bit, maybe kind of bad, but it's evil. If it goes against the will of God and the Word of God and the ways of God. And so that's what these emotions are. These, these evil emotions rising up in the nations and throughout the world that are out of control and they're anti-God. And what do they lead us to do? They lead us to plot and to make plans to strive to find out how do we get meaning and provision and security and significance without God. That's, the, that's what it's talking about there, that plot against God. We all want, everybody wants all those things. We want our lives to have meaning. We want to have everything that we need, which is security. And we want to be protected. And we want to feel significant but we want it without a God. We want it without the Creator God. And, and that's the, the problem. So we plot in vain. Uh, and, uh, and we come up with all these different ways. How do we burst out 
of these bonds, these handcuffs the Creator's trying to put us in? How do we get free from the Creator and what He is calling us and declared in His Word and how He has ordered the world and what He has designed and created us to do? How do we break free from that? That's what people are trying to do today. And what that is, is when we riot against God and we believe that somehow we can be victorious against an almighty, all-powerful God, the poet here, the psalmist says, that's laughable. God sits enthroned and laughs is how the poet describes that. Because how, how do you think that your plots and plans are going to somehow conquer God? And the heart of it is goes all the way back to Genesis 3 to the fall that God hasn't given you everything that you really need. God's hiding stuff. He's holding stuff back from you and you can't trust Him. Eat that, eat that fruit that's forbidden and you'll see. And that's the heart of it that, that God doesn't have your best in mind, but that's the lie from Satan. In God, we have everything we need. We have all the significance we need in God. But how often do you feel insignificant? How often do you struggle with out-of-control emotions that say, I'm, I'm not worthy, or I'm not enough, or I, you know, I'm worthless. But yet God's Word says that we have all the worth we need because we're created by God. And He loved you so much, He sent His Son to die in your place. God has our best interests at heart. And when we plot and try to figure out ways to be godless and to live in a godless society that's supposed to take care of everybody and, 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 and somehow everything's going to, you know, a utopia without God, it's not going to happen. It's not ever going to happen. And so that's laughable. And when people rise up against God, it's much like a, a bunch of mice trying to plot against the lion. There's no chance. The lion is going to win. God is going to win. And so in a lot of ways, I thought about sometimes when toddlers throw a fit and their emotions are out of control. And sometimes as a parent, you realize that what they're doing is not good, but sometimes you want to laugh because it's kind of funny that they're just so out of control in their emotions over nothing, over uh, spilt milk or something that's not significant. And so that's what the poet is, is trying to say here. God is in heaven. He has declared what is right. And their sinful, selfish rage and their vain attempts to take God off the throne and to claim that they somehow know better or have got a better plan than the all-knowing, all-powerful, transcendent, one and only God of the universe is laughable. It's, it's laughable what they're trying to do. This psalm is also special because it's messianic. And the Messiah is something that's taught throughout the Old Testament that the Messiah would come. 
And so as Christians, we believe that Messiah was Jesus Christ, is Jesus Christ. And so we learn in Acts chapter 4 where this psalm is quoted, that this is a psalm that although King David wrote, he didn't realize he was writing about Jesus Christ. This psalm prophesies about the coming Jesus Christ. It says, God has set His King on Zion. God has set His King on that holy hill and He has given all things into the hands of Jesus. And those that reject God's King, no matter how great their plans, no matter, you know, they're going to promise that false freedom. Anytime someone tells you you can have freedom without God, without the Word of God, without Jesus Christ in the heart of that freedom, it's a lie. It's a false freedom. And those that reject God's King, He has set His King on Zion. He has appointed the King. Anyone that rejects that will be broken with a rod of iron and dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. Therefore, the poet, the psalmist says, live in the wisdom of God. Are you living in the wisdom of God's Word? Welcome the knowledge of God. Do you have that welcome, Matt Al? That you're a lifelong student of the Word of God. You're striving to grow and strive to open your heart, your mind, and your soul to the authority of God. Every way you can, God, I open my heart to Your authority. I give You authority over every thought, everything I do, everything I say. God, come in. Come into my life. And as the psalmist said in verse 12, Worship the Savior. Worship God's Son. Kiss the Son. That is, that is worship. Worship God's Son and serve Him only lest God's anger, His righteous wrath come against you. His righteous wrath come against you and you perish in the way. That false freedom will not save you from the wrath of God. Grand notions of evolution or whatever else the godless world comes up with will not save you from the wrath of God. It must be through the Son. Jesus Christ is God's Messiah. When Jesus was baptized, He said, This is My Son. Listen to Him. He didn't say listen to scientists or PhDs or politicians or anyone else. Listen to Him, the carpenter from Nazareth, the virgin-born Son of God who died on the cross for your sin. He is the King of kings and He is the Lord of lords. Any notions of freedom without Jesus at the center you can just automatically reject them. They're false freedom. They're not going to free anybody. They're not going to genuinely help anybody. The psalmist closes saying, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And so you are blessed when you take refuge. You're happy. Your most blessedness, like we talked about last week, everlasting joy 
when we take refuge in Jesus Christ. That's blessedness. Finding our security, our significance. I'm significant not because of what I do, not because of how I preach today or what, uh, or how we sing today or whatever. That doesn't make me significant. I'm significant because of who I am in. My refuge is Jesus Christ. My hope is in Jesus Christ. He is my refuge and I'm significant because He loves me. And that's all the significance I need. Everything else is just icing on the cake. Are you being ruled by out-of-control emotions? Why do the nations rage? Maybe you need to ask yourself that question. Why am I raging? Why are my emotions so out of control? Why do I keep coming up with all these plots and plans to fix myself or to fix someone else instead of trusting in my God and my Savior? Resting in Him. Finding my security and my significance in Him alone. Are you ruled by out-of-control emotions or a completely in-control Messiah? The Lord Jesus Christ is in complete control at all times. Are you trusting in Him? Are you being driven by plots and plans that leave God out and promise a false freedom that will never come? Don't trust anyone that wants to leave God out even in the slightest sense. Don't trust anyone. Don't think you're going to find any freedom in anyone that is leaving God out and that doesn't have Christ Jesus as the sinner. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Hear that. For freedom, Christ set us free. Jesus wants you to be free today and you can be free by trusting. Invite Him in. Believe today. Declare that belief. Jesus, I'm believing in You today. I'm finding my hope and my security, my significance in You today. Enter in and be the Lord of my life. Pray that to Jesus. Invite Him in to save you. And then as a believer, stand firm. When you say, I have Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, and in Him I find my security and my significance and my eternal hope, then stand firm in that belief and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. When you think about the Egyptians, as soon as they were set free from slavery in Egypt and they had their first problem, they were like, hey, let's go back to slavery. Let's go back. And that's us. If your hope is not grounded, if you're not standing firm in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going back to what enslaved you to begin with. So as we close today with a prayer, and if you're watching online, we encourage you to get in touch with us. Let us know if there's something God's doing in your life, if you're receiving Christ Jesus as your Savior today. But let's pray and we'll close the live stream, but we'll enter into a time of invitation.
And as we enter into that time of invitation, if you're here today and you need prayer, respond by coming forward. But let's close with prayer. God, we're so thankful for Your Word today. And Jesus, I thank You that You're the Anointed One. That You are God's one and only Son and that our trust and our hope and our security and our significance is in You. Help those that are lost and living godless lives to repent right now and turn to You. Help believers here today that have fallen back into a yoke of slavery to get out of it now and to turn to You and to stand firm. Jesus, we thank You for our freedom. Move in this place as we close. In Jesus' name, Amen.